Please be seated. And once again, good morning. I hope that you guys have a, it uh, seems a little lower than normal. Let's see what happens here if I do this. Who plays around with this thing in the middle of the week? Oh, that's better. My, my glasses focus right here. Down there, they're a little harder to see. So there it is. Somebody must come in and have a good time with us during the week. We'll have to watch for them this week, see who it is. Well, again, oh, by the way, Gene and Joyce enjoyed your 50th anniversary yesterday. Actually, it was two days ago, but yesterday was the celebration. Your anniversary was delicious. I loved it. And then the stories about you were just really good. That was a lot of fun. So you, the kids did a great job planning for that, and um, we'll see you for your 100th, all right? How would that be? 50 years from now. All right, we are right now beginning, or actually kind of in the middle of a series, a practical series. Okay, sometimes our series are teaching things on theology and the Bible, that sort of stuff. This is far more practical series to say, okay, how does the Bible teach us to live? And we're calling this series, the series Overcoming Broken Humanity, Replacing Six Deadly Emotions. To give you a little background right here, it works this way. In the beginning, of course, God created us all, and he called us good. But we weren't good because he created us with our own special goodness. For nothing is good except God. We were good because we were in a right relationship with God. The world was in a right relationship with God. Everything was in a right relationship with God. That's what keeps it good. But that relationship was broken when humanity turned its back on God when we disobeyed. And when that happened, creation lost its relationship, human beings lost their relationship, and we began to be revealed for who we really are apart from God. And we are not good apart from God. We have the capacity for goodness, but we can't get it done. That's why human beings can think of all the good things that should happen. We know the way the world should work. We know how society should be. That's the remnant in there. We know that of what should happen, but we just can't seem to get there. In fact, if you take a look at the history of humanity, every good thing we have started apart from God, without his leadership, every single good thing we have started from the governments to organizations to philanthropies begins to deteriorate after a while. We know we should do it. We just can't seem to get there and we can't seem to maintain it. And that is because we are broken. It's broken humanity. And it comes out in many, many ways, but really it also comes out, and we see it a lot, in, in, in emotions that kind of do damage. Now, when we accept Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. That's wonderful. Our name is written in the book of life. Thank you, Father. But that doesn't mean that our broken humanity is changed and healed. One day, it will be. One day, this broken humanity will be, and that's because I'm going to leave this broken body, and I am going to receive a new heavenly body, and it won't be broken, and I won't have those issues up there, but as long as I live down here, I will have those issues. Till then, we have to learn to overcome our broken humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because this is kind of a toe-stepping-on series, because if you can't relate to each one of these emotions, you can relate to probably most of them. In fact, some of you this last week, remember we talked about anger and replacing it with compassion. And some of you did that really well this week, right? Some of you said, nice try, better luck next week. Okay, that's the way it works. Because it's one of those types of sermon series, I don't want you to walk away discouraged. I don't want you to feel like we're beating up on you. So every time we start, we're going to remember this passage right here. And we're going to read it together. Here we go. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus stop. Where is there any condemnation? No. When? Now. Sitting right here. I don't care what you did this last week. 
if you made it through the whole week by filling your, replacing your anger with compassion, or if you messed up. There is now no condemnation if you're in Jesus Christ, okay? We're all in the process of learning. Let's read it one more time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the one that lives in me. It's my broken humanity. That's my tendency. But Jesus Christ comes in and helps me live above that tendency. And even when I mess up, there's no condemnation because Jesus Christ forgives through his grace. We'll be talking about that more as the series goes on. Okay? Now, again, this is not a self-help kind of thing. I'm not just going to teach you little techniques. There will be some techniques that we learn each week. But really, this is a series about how we have to rely on God. You can't do it on your own. And that's where we get into trouble. You say, you have a temper problem. Okay, I just won't do it anymore. Well, did that work? Does it ever work just to say to yourself, okay, I won't do it anymore. I'll just buy willpower. The key, and here it is, write this down, very important. We're going to remember it every time. The key to overcoming my broken humanity is fill power, not will power. Okay? It isn't about me just saying, I, I won't be angry anymore. It's about me filling myself with the good things of God, replacing my anger with something else so that there's no room for the anger. If I say to myself, don't be angry, and the anger is gone, I'm still empty. Nothing fills it. And guess what happens to that empty vessel? Something's going to take its place. Much better to fill ourselves with the good things of God. And then these deadly emotions don't have any room in our life. This is what Scripture says. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. That's the way it works. To overcome these things, we fill ourselves with the good things of God. We fill ourselves with the Spirit of God. Just telling yourself to stop it won't work. You don't have enough willpower. We use fill power, not willpower. Okay, and here's a list of the, of the uh, things that we'll be talking about. Ready? Right here. We're talking about replacing anger with compassion, replacing envy with contentment, replacing bitterness with forgiveness, replacing guilt with grace, replacing shame with identity, and anxiety with trust. Now, last week it was anger with compassion. Today it's going to be this one right here. Ready? Envy with contentment. That's what we're talking about. Last week, did you guys try it this week at all to every time you got angry or something? Did you use any of the Christian cuss words I taught you last week? I did. I did, as a matter of fact. Uh, there were some times I just, you know, fuss budget or whatever it is, fuddruckers or wh whatever it is you choose to just ah, vent. Just vent for a short period of time. There you go. Were you also able to replace maybe the anger with some compassion and remember that maybe the person that you were angry with has their own story? Maybe you began to be empathetic and to feel what they were feeling and go, okay, I've been there. And to replace the anger that you felt with the compassion of God. That's what we talked about last week. Today it is envy with contentment. All right? Now, as we get started today, let's remember something. Envy isn't all bad. In fact, none of these deadly emotions are all bad. All of them can have a godly use. Even as we talked about last week, anger can be godly. There is actually envy that can be godly. In other words, God can use it. Write this down. Very important. Envy can 
lead me to a better life. It can lead me to a better life. It isn't all bad. Let's say I have a horrible relationship with my kids, and I really want to do better. And I see someone who has a great relationship with their kids. I go up to them and I say what? I envy your relationship with your kids. How do you do that? I see something going on that I really, I know I need to be better at that. I see somebody who's actually getting it done, and I walk up to them and say, how do you do that? In fact, the Bible tells us that God uses envy to bring people to himself. Take a look at this passage from the book of Romans. Paul is writing, and he's talking to, to the Gentiles, so the church of Rome is almost completely Gentile, and he's talking about the Jews who, by this point in time, the Jews had turned their back on, on the gospel. They started, the, the, the church actually started all Jewish. It was all Jewish. Then they began to reach out to the Gentiles. Peter and then Paul began to reach out to Gentiles. And very quickly, the church became almost exclusive a Gentile church, still is. And many of the Jews turned their back on Jesus. And Paul, who was a Jew himself, as was Jesus, wants them back so much. So this is what he says. Again, I ask, did they stumble, meaning the Jews, so as to fall beyond recovery? Are they lost forever? Are the Jews just going to go to hell? There's no place for them? He says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. In other words, he says, we're bringing the gospel to the Gentiles so that the Jews can go, wow, I want some of that. How come we don't have those blessings anymore? They become envious of the relationship that the Gentiles have. And this is what he says a few verses later, in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save someone. He wants to live in such a way, and this is a great way for all of us to live, to live in such a way that people look at us and they envy. Now, they don't envy what we have. They don't envy our possessions, but they, the, our lifestyle and who we are and our relationships with people around us, our relationship with God, the peace that we have deep inside, and they go, man, I really want some of that. How did you get there? I've got all the toys in the world, but I don't have that that peace within that I see. How do you get there? I envy the peace you know. And we say, you have all the toys, you don't have Jesus. That's the secret. Sometimes envy actually helps. But that's not really the kind of envy that we're calling a deadly emotion. That's not a deadly emotion. The envy at that point actually is kind of life-giving. It brings you right, hopefully, to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The deadly envy that is when we, uh, we envy, or there's another word in the Old Testament, thou shalt not covet. There it is. We just don't use the word covet. I mean, let's face it. Nobody uses the word covet very often any longer. But we do use the word envy. When God said you shall not covet, he was using the word that we could call envy. And it's about not just, it's about something that they have. Not just the fact that maybe they know the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be a good kind of envy. But we get envious over something that someone else possesses and we don't have and is built around the three Ps, the three deadly Ps that are this way. Power, prestige, and possessions. Those are the things that sometimes we envy. And when we get to that point, it becomes a deadly emotion. And here's why. Envy can lead me to foolish decisions. How many of us right now are in debt far beyond what we should be or even can handle because we envied 
somebody else's possession and we decided to go buy one just like it. These foolish decisions, they kind of center around the two areas right here, ready? Relationally and financially. A neighbor has a new car. And now suddenly, my old car, that yesterday was okay, today is not enough. Someone has power, and I want it. So I undermine them. Someone has more prestige or honor than I do, and I envy that. I want to be thought of that way. So I, I either build myself up or I tear them down, or both. This is what the Bible says right here. Here it is. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And James says that's the problem with envy. That's why we quarrel and fight. We want what someone else has. We feel that they don't deserve it, and we do. Why don't I get this? How come you have it? And there is the problem. See, here's the big problem with envy. Envy leads to dissatisfaction with what God has given me. All right. Many of you uh, have had children. Many of you have children right now. Many of you have had children growing up. You remember this very well. One of your children says, can I have a glass of milk? You set them down at the table. You pour a glass of milk. Another one of your children comes up, says, can I have a glass of milk? And you pour the glass of milk, but you weren't smart. You gave the second child a little bit more. And the first child says what? That's not fair. He got more than me. Okay. Pour that one. Unfortunately, when you poured that one in, it got a little too much. And now the second child says, wait a minute, they have more now. Do you think we outgrow that? It's just not over milk any longer. Not anymore. But it's exactly the same. It's envy of what somebody else has. Now, before that second child got their glass of milk, the first child was very happy with their glass of milk, ready to drink it. It was wonderful. But then the second child got a little bit more, and suddenly that glass of milk that just a few moments ago was just fine is no longer acceptable. And you haven't outgrown it yet, have you? Neither have I. That's the envy. Someone else has more. You're satisfied with what God has. It's wonderful. And then suddenly envy comes and it isn't wonderful anymore. You look around at everything that we have, every good and perfect gift, and you know where it came from? Where did it come from? You tell me. Every good and perfect gift comes from God gave it to you. He gave you your own glass of milk. said, here it is. But maybe he gave someone else a little bit more in their glass and suddenly what God gave you is no longer enough. Take a look at this passage right here. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God gives us things. And we're so happy. 
And then for whatever reason, he gives somebody else more. And suddenly what he gave us is no longer enough. That's what envy does. That's the type of thing that happens even in those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ because we are living in that broken, broken body. Now, please remember that when we're trying to overcome this, this envy issue, we have an entire economy against us. Our whole economy is built on envy, all right? Our whole economy is built on, our advertising is built on, is designed to create dissatisfaction and discontent with what you currently own. You think everything you have is fine, and then suddenly advertising companies come along to tell you how discontented you should be because you don't have the newest, latest model. How many of you remember in the 1990s when the, when the home computer was first coming out? And we started with, of course, I started with a Commodore 64. Oh, my word. But then when I finally got my first desktop, it was an 8088. Remember what that is? Okay, and then what happened was a 286 and then the 3 and the 486 and all there were years that I bought two complete computer systems in one year because the one that I bought at the beginning of the year that I loved, it was great. Suddenly, by the end of the year, it was obsolete. didn't even want it. I had to have the latest one, the newest one. Because advertising had created within me that discontent. When uh, I was a teenager, uh, I, for whatever reason, I, I could not get a job at a fast food restaurant. Now, probably because I had an afro. Maybe that was it. I know that's hard for you to understand, but uh, it is true. Um, my hair, when, when it grows out, I don't let it grow out anymore, and when there was a whole lot more, my hair is very, very uh, stiff and bristly. My, my nickname was uh, a Brillo pad in junior high school, I'm scarred for life just because of that. And then in high school, of course, long hair was the thing. Nobody could have short hair back then. And when my hair is long, it's bushy and afro, and that's just the way it is. Maybe that's why nobody would hire me when I showed up for an interview. So I created my own job. I became a door-to-door -door salesman for Fuller Brush. That's what I did as a uh, junior in high school. About 16 and a half, almost 17, I became a door-to-door -door salesman for Fuller Brush. And I went door to door, knocked on the door, they gave me a little territory, and I then sold people things that they needed because they'd run out of all the products and things like that. I then graduated to door to door salesman for vacuum cleaners. Yes, I was a vacuum cleaner salesman. Now, let me tell you what my job was. It's one of the reasons that I, I gave this whole thing up. One of my jobs when I was selling these high priced rainbow vacuum cleaners, okay, that's what it was, when I did that, one of my jobs was, you may have been perfectly happy with your vacuum cleaner when I showed up, but my job was to make sure that when I left, you hated your vacuum cleaner and you had to have mine. And so I actually had little techniques and tricks that I would use, particularly if you had a Kirby vacuum cleaner. Oh, I love Kirby vacuum cleaners. I could kill a, as a matter of fact, we actually had a portion of our sales pitch called the Kirby vacuum kill, because I would suck the air right out of a Kirby vacuum cleaner with my rainbow. And all of it was designed to say, you know that vacuum cleaner, the very expensive guy, that you thought was great? You don't like it anymore, do you? You need mine, which, by the way, is even more expensive. That's what I did. That's why I also gave it up. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the hard sell. I couldn't do the things that they really wanted me to do. I just, I couldn't do that. So I gave that up and went to work for Avery Label Company, whole other story. Here we are. But I know what it means. And I know how to make somebody discontent. That's what advertising is all supposed to be. 
As soon as people in our country become content with what they have so that they don't need more, our economy will crash. Because since particularly the 1950s, it has been the goal of business to create products that first of all have a limited lifespan, and second of all, create products and then create new ones so that you're no longer happy and to make something obsolete so that you have to buy the new one. I can prove that to you. I studied this in my, in my doctoral dissertation. I have all the quotes in my office. I want to show them right here. In the 1950s is when the business executives got together and said, this is what we need to do. We always need to do bigger and better, make everything obsolete so that people will give up what they have to buy the new stuff. Because if we don't, the economy crashes. Our economy is built on envy. Envy can lead me to the debt I can't handle. And debt that will not allow me to be faithful as God would call me to be generous. Because of my envy, I misspent. I got in debt. And sometimes that envy can't be satisfied no matter how many loans you take out. You look at something and you go, I will never have enough to buy what I envy. And when we're at that point, the problem isn't just finances. It gnaws deep in our soul. Remember I told you that envy can lead you to a better life? Well, write this one down. Ready? Prolonged envy can lead me to a bitter Envy of the Lord Jesus Christ and envy of someone's relationship can lead us right into that eternal life. But envy of these things around us, the things that I can't have, leads me to a bitter life. We're going to be talking more about bitterness next week as an emotion. This happens when we continually look at others who have what we can never have. And let's face it, in this world today, particularly with internet, particularly with TV and other things, you can see so many people who have things that most of us in this room will never, ever get. I don't care how much you work. Unless, of course, you win the lottery. And so that's why some people actually throw away their money on the lottery. So that they can get all the money they want. So they can buy all the things that they think they really want and need. And when we're at that point, that envy begins to gnaw. This is what the scripture says. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. The Bible shows us exactly what can happen when we let envy rule our lives. As a matter of fact, there's an entire psalm, Psalm 73, that's all about envy and what happens. Let me show you the beginning of the psalm right here. Surely God is good to Israel. So he starts by saying, okay, God is good. I know God is good. God's been great, but this is what happened. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is so human. This is so incredibly human. God is so good to me. And then I start looking around going, wait a minute. I follow God and he's good to me, but see these people over here? They don't follow God. And he gave them more in their glass. My glass is like this. And I follow Jesus Christ. 
I even give some of my income away. They deny Jesus Christ and their glass has got this much in it. And you start to get really, really ticked off. The, the writer, we won't go into all the, the details, let me tell you about them. The writer says, it's when you look at the wicked and you look at all that they have and then they have health and long life to go along with it. I know a lot of people who follow Jesus Christ, they have very little, their health is broken, they die young. What happened? And the more he looked at it, the more he thought about it, the more angry he became and the more bitter he became. He began to envy their lifestyle because they didn't follow God. And yet they had so much more. You look around and you see the people who don't follow Jesus. And there are so many. And some of them have so much. And for us, my wife is driving around in a 14-year-old Dodge Caravan with almost 200,000 miles, and that's our good car. You start to get a little ticked off. This is what happened to the psalmist. Take a look at this. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Why in the world would I follow God? I got nothing out of it. Look at all these people who don't follow God and look at all that they have. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Look at everything those people have. And you know what? You can't just look at yourself and say, Stop it! Because at this point, all the willpower in the world won't work beyond it. You can say, stop it for a little while, but your eyes will always go right back, and they'll always have that thought once again. How come they have so much more? How come you gave them more in their glass? It's not fair. Maybe, maybe I've been wrong about this whole thing. Maybe I need to follow their lifestyle. Well, the only way to do that is replace that envy with what? Contentment. So for the rest of our time here, we're going to learn how to replace the envy because you can't just say stop it. How you can replace the envy with contentment is going to be in three steps. Ready? Here we go. First of all is this. Every time I see someone with more, remember that there are many with what? Less. <laughs> this is huge. This is really important. By the way... Um, the experts, whoever they are, I have no idea, but the experts would say, if you really want to learn contentment, hang out with people who make 25% less than you do, and you'll be happy. If you make $60,000 a year, make sure that all of your friends only make 45, and you'll be happy. But if you hang around with people who make 85, you'll be discontent, because they will be able to buy things you can't buy. Interesting, isn't it? Crazy, actually. I want to show you some things right here. If um, you can, by the way, you can go to places right here in the country and, and see people who have a lot less. Uh, it's one of the good reasons to go on missions trips. One of the first in-country missions trips I went to was the Navajo Nation down in um, Farmington, New Mexico, and we were there to do a VBS and to work on some churches. And it was, I'd never quite seen that kind. I, you know, I'd been through downtown L.A. and some of the slums and that sort of thing, but I'd never really seen poverty the way that it was on the Navajo reservation. 
There in the Navajo Reservation, of course, there were many, many families who lived way out in, in, in the reservation, but the soft, cushy Native Americans, that's the way everybody saw them, lived in the trailer park right there on the reservation because they only had to go down the street to the water spigot to get their water for their trailer. Everybody else had to go down to the lake or the stream to get their water. And when having to go down to the corner to fill up your bucket for water is cushy, you know you're in a world of hurt. But that was the Navajo Nation, Farmington, New Mexico. But I've also been very blessed in my life to be able to, to travel the, the world. I've seen, of course, in lots in Europe, there's incredible wealth, incredible palaces. But I've also been in countries where there wasn't. One of the first times I got to teach was in a place called Chian, Chile. And I taught at a seminary for a couple of weeks down there. And one of the things that we did is we, uh, we took a little side trip up into the Andes Mountains and um, came to this little village. <laughs> the missionary that I was with, David Roller, who's now one of our bishops, uh, we went to this little farm. And the, uh, the house was, was, a, was a hut. That's what we'd call it. It was a round hut. Uh, made of, of sticks and everything and kind of covered and there was a fire right in the middle of the room and there was a hole at the top of uh, and that's where the smoke went and all of the furniture was made out of tree limbs kind of you know little three-legged stools that you would sit on and something was roasting on the fire I have no idea what that thing was it looked more like a gopher than anything else but uh, but what was amazing as I looked around at this incredible poverty the man and his wife and they had a little little girl probably couldn't have been more than two. And they were just smiling. They were so happy, so proud of what they had. I even ate what was on the fire. I have no idea what it was. Uh, but there was no way I was going to turn it down. They had nothing, as far as I could see. And then it was just a couple years ago, I remember I was able to go and, and teach for a month in Malawi. I want to show you some pictures just to remind you because I have these on my desktop. This is what, what comes up as my, my backgrounds just to remind me of what life is like. I want to show you what a typical middle class house looks like in Malawi. This is a middle class house right there. That's, uh, that's mud bricks right there. They make the, the, the bricks, they go down and they, they mix up a bunch of mud. And they form them into bricks and they let them dry in the sun. Then they pile the bricks high and they fire them with fire underneath and it kind of finishes them all off and that's what they make their house. This is middle class life. Let me show you an upper middle class home, okay? This is an upper middle class home. You know it because the roof is made out of what? Tin. There are very few houses in Malawi that have a tin roof. The thatch roof is the normal one, which does not keep out all the water. As a matter of fact, some of the pastors I was teaching, sometimes it would rain because I was there... Um, just at the beginning of their, uh, or end of their springtime. And uh, it was raining from time to time, and they were a little concerned because they knew that the water was going to be dripping on their children at home. And in fact, one of them, their baby, their infant, had just died the previous week. And you say, well, why is he at class? Wouldn't you be home? Not there. Kids die all the time. A baby dying is, well, that's what happens to babies. You're fortunate if one lives. So the loss of an infant was, well, it's sad, obviously, but everybody does that. This is middle class. Let me show you the inside of the middle class. See, can you see the roof right here? The, the way that they, they put, boy, that, that was something else. The timbers that come together. This is 
upper middle class Malawi. Ready? Let me show you what they eat. This is a typical meal. They will eat it twice a day. On the right is called sima, and it's corn. Everybody has to grow their own corn, and so they, they always make sure that they have enough corn saved, and then they grind it up. And then on the left-hand side is what they call relish, and that's going to be, there's a couple hard-boiled eggs and a little bit of spinach. They're going to eat that twice a day. Now, for breakfast, they'll just have the sima, and they'll put more water in it, so it's more like uh, cream of wheat or something like that. This is their lunch and dinner every single day of their lives. This is it. Uh, menu planning is not difficult in Malawi. Sema and a little something on the side, except for twice. Twice a year, they get their big celebration dinner on their birthdays and Christmas Day. Let me show you. Here it is. There it is. It's a piece of fried chicken. It's a bottle of Coke and some white rice. And that is your celebration, Thanksgiving, incredible dinner. What are you guys eating today? This is what they do. Twice a year. Let me show you an affluent church in Malawi. This is affluent. That's an incredible church. Most churches, most of our pastors preach four poles, a little bit of a thatched roof, no walls at all, and that's where they preach to sometimes hundreds of people sitting outside. This is an affluent church. I got to preach. It was very interesting. Let me show you the inside of it. Okay, that is dirt, packed dirt. Church is in kind of a little uh, cross shape. Here's where the, the people are going to be sitting. Uh, then the ladies... Um, the kids and everyone will be sitting here, then a lot of the ladies, pastors' wives will be over on what's the left, and the men, the grown-up adults, will be on the, the right-hand side, and the special speakers sit in those chairs. I get to sit in one of those chairs. It is an incredible, in fact, I want to show you part of their worship service. Now, Gail, here is their worship pastor in action right now. Let's see if it'll show. By the way, this man on the left is an albino. Do they look happy? No padded pews. Nothing like that. By the way, this guy that is leading right there, brilliant man. Had he been born in the United States of America, he would be a doctor or a lawyer or a professor. Brilliant. I got to teach him in some of my classes. Okay, this is phenomenal. And that's how they worship. They had nothing. Now I'm going to show you how they take an offering. We just took our offering. It's kind of boring. We just passed out the plates. Here's how they take the offering in Malawi. You see the ladies bringing up their offering? They brought in $6 that day. It was a record.
All right, that's enough, thanks. This is uh, life in Malawi. <laughs> you know, you look around at all that we have, and it's, uh, did God give our, our glass a little bit more milk than he gave them? No, we've got a bunch. You know, I understand that there are churches with bigger facilities or nicer facilities or more staff, and but when we begin to look at that and think about it, it just breeds that discontent because our Father has given us so much. And yeah, there are, there are churches and there are people with more, but there are so many people on this planet who have so much less. But the Bible tells us an even better way to fill our lives with contentment. It isn't just, because even when we're doing this, we're still looking this way, out at other people, comparing ourselves to who have more, people who have less. The Bible says there's even a better way to be filled with contentment. And here it is. Keep my eyes focused up, not out. Comparing yourself to someone who has less may help you, and it'll help you put it in perspective, but it's still comparing ourselves to others. How much better is it to live with our focus not on what others have or don't have, but on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to say He's enough? Oh, I may want more things. But I have the most important thing there is in all the universe and ever will be, and that is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Stop. Do you understand what he just said? Okay. <laughs> okay, you don't have money. And maybe you don't have much. But you know what you have? The promise that God is always going to be there. And if God isn't enough, if it has to be God and, then God is no longer enough. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Did you understand? This isn't about fear. This isn't about what people will do. This is about the fact that I don't have to compare myself. And be worried about all that I have or I don't have. I have a relationship with God. Incredible. Which brings us to that third thing that we just need to remember, to fill ourselves with contentment. If I have to, I'm going to look at other people and understand, okay, some people have more, but a lot of people have less. I've got a bunch of stuff. I've, we have so much stuff. We had a garage sale last week. It was obscene. We sold it all off, and I still took boxes to the Goodwill. I have so much stuff. How dare any of the Baileys look around with envy at anything or anybody? I have so much stuff. We sold it and gave it away, and I still have a house full of stuff. But rather than even look around, I'm going to keep my, my gaze focused on Jesus Christ because I have a relationship with him, and I'm going to remember that what really matters is eternity. Okay. Some of us have more in this life, some of us have less. But one thing about this life, all of us are going to leave this life. And anything, the people who have more will leave more behind, and the people who have less will leave less behind. But you're going to leave it all behind. And the time that you do get to enjoy it is pretty short when you talk about eternity. See, that's how the psalmist got to Remember I told you about the psalmist who, who looked around at, at the wicked and they had all this stuff, and he says, man, I envied them, and I got bitter. How can this happen? You know, when he got his mind straight, 
Here it is. When I tried to understand all this, he says, it, oppress, it was oppressive to me till I what? Entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final. Okay, temporarily, they have more than me. Eternally, I have the Lord God. And whether if you have much, you will leave much behind. If you have little, you will leave little behind, but you're going to leave it all behind. And I have the most important thing, the thing that really matters, and that is an eternal relationship with God. That's why the Bible says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. Some will leave little, some will leave a lot, but you're going to leave it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Isn't that something? Wow. Who, who of us in this room would be content with just food and clothing? I get upset when my internet isn't quite fast enough. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And here's where that passage that you've heard many times probably misunderstood it. It says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, here we go. See, the point is this. We're born to envy. It's part of our broken humanity. We live in a society that creates envy. We live in an economy that if we didn't envy, our economy would collapse. Constantly bombarded. Told that what you have may have been good enough last week, but today it's not. You need the new, the better. And we make foolish decisions because we go out and we buy it and we get in debt. Or we get bitter and angry. There's only one way to deal with that. You can't say to yourself, stop it. You're going to have to fill yourself with contentment. And you fill with contentment by understanding, okay, you have more. Your glass is like this. Someone has glass like this. Lots of people have glass down here. That's the way it works. But look up. You have Jesus Christ. You have the most important thing that can possibly be. You can lose everything, but you still have Jesus. And one day, all of us will leave everything we have. Some will leave a lot behind, some will leave a little behind, but we're all going to leave it all behind. And then, we have eternity. Let me tell you my Jake DeShazer story. I was his pastor for just a few years. When I came here in 2004, he was um, already beginning to fade a little bit, and his strength and his vitality were not quite what they had been. But I would go and I would visit he and Florence um, in, their, um, in their home there. It was a small, little bitty room. You know, you, you think of all the great things that this man had done, and, and he was ending his life in a little one room with a little bedroom, and it was small and no great palace, nothing like that. But he fascinated me because, of course, he's a war hero and a missionary. And um, so I remember sitting with, with Jake. And sometimes when I would be sitting with Jake and he would kind of doze off and Florence and I would talk a little bit and then he'd wake up and just an incredible man of God. But I wanted to know what life was like for him. You know, you just don't get an opportunity to speak to, to someone like this very often. So I remember looking at him and saying, Jake, tell me about your time when you were a prisoner of war with the Japanese. And he looked at me with this blank stare. And he turned to his wife and he said, was I a prisoner of the war of the Japanese? 
And she said, yes, sweetie, you were. No. He had no memory. But if I said to him, and I did, tell me about your ministry in Japan, you couldn't shut him up. He remembered Service after service after service. He remembered the people he'd led to the Lord Jesus Christ. He remembered leading the man who had led the raid in Pearl Harbor to the Lord Jesus Christ. He remembered preaching all over Japan for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, his time as a prisoner of war meant nothing. That's just the thing that happened. His focus was on eternity and bringing that life-giving message to an entire nation. See, he understood what's really important. All the things that we have are fun and they're toys and it's okay to have some toys. And Don't worry about that. God fills up your glass and take it. It's wonderful. You have more in your glass than someone else? That's all right. God gets to do that. Just don't envy. Don't force things in your glass that you can't afford. Always make sure that you can be generous. Generous for the kingdom of God. Remember above everything else, whether you leave a little or you leave a lot, you're going to leave it all. And what's important isn't the things, it isn't status, it isn't prestige. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best thing you want to be able to do is to say that you've been able to bring somebody with you in that eternity. It isn't just about what we possess, but that we've been able to share, and at least someone else out there has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, because we've been generous, generous with our resources, generous with our words. And that's how you replace the envy that is built within you, that is fostered by the nation in which you live, with a contentment that comes from knowing God and knowing He will never leave us. Let's pray about that. Father, so easy to talk about, but so hard to do. This afternoon, many of us will be sitting down and we'll watch TV and something's going to, a commercial will show up. And that commercial will be designed to make me discontent with something. Something that I currently have isn't enough any longer. Or something that I don't have, I don't even think, I didn't even realize I needed. Suddenly, I need it. Father, that's the way the world is working within our lives. Father, please, thank you for everything you put in our glass. I, we appreciate it. But Father, when those feelings of envy begin to show themselves, would you remind us of some of the pictures we've seen? Would you remind us that there are so many people who are envious of what we have? Suddenly what we have isn't enough, and yet, Father, there are people who are so envious of what we have. But more importantly, Father, would you help us just to look up at you, to be able to say, God, I really want that thing, but you, Father, are enough through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, those who